This is another episode of Connecting the Dots podcast. I'm Skip Stewart, Vice President and Chief Improvement Officer for Baptist Memorial Healthcare. Hey everybody, I'm Jake Lancaster. I'm an internal medicine physician and the Chief Medical Information Officer for the Baptist System. Well, today we are so excited. We have Dr. Michael Privatera with us, and uh, we were introduced uh, to Dr. Privatera by uh, Dr. Paul DeChant, which was also on the podcast uh, weeks back. And we're going to be talking about human factors and healthcare. But before we jump right into that, Dr. Privatera, if you would tell us a little bit about your background, uh, where do you work at, uh, some of the work that you've been involved with. Sure. Uh, thanks for for the opportunity here. Um, my name is Mike Privatera. I'm a consultation liaison psychiatrist by training, so that's more of a, a psychiatrist that that's portable. that goes to see patients in the hospital. That gave me uh, quite an opportunity to be able to work with with uh, clinicians of all different uh, specialties, and uh, trained at the University of Rochester, where uh, Dr. Jordan Jen Engel has influenced many people with biopsychosocial approach. And um, I'm a professor emeritus of psychiatry and have been more recently in the last year working as faculty to the Institute of Healthcare Improvement. Um, and so we've been working on workplace change uh, is issues that have been supported by the Lorna Breen uh, Act of Congress, where uh, 45 44 grantees were awarded grants, and uh, uh, together we're trying to work on what are the uh, the issues that can help organizations that uh, might be successful for burnout, and in addition, would be patient safety, from my opinion too. Well, well, Mike, I'm I'm very excited to have you on today. We we've talked a lot about burnout on this on this program. We've also talked about how healthcare is a very complex socio-technical system, but we have not talked about human factors or human factors engineering, um, which is obviously a, a big component of, of those two things that I just mentioned. Um, so, you know, most of the audience probably doesn't know uh, what human factors engineering is. Uh, can you define the term and tell us a little bit about the concept? Sure, be, I'd be happy to. I, I think, uh, well, I spent the last 12 to 13 years trying to uh, take concepts from human factors engineering and try to get the, the key concepts and make them more available to a layperson to understand because most leaders are not engineers. Uh, most physicians are not engineers. So um, human, fact and hu human factors, um, sometimes known as ergonomics, is basically it's a scientific discipline and it draws from uh, multiple sciences to understand and basically optimize the interactions between humans and other elements of us of a work system. So we're usually uh, experienced with physical ergonomics, which is basically like uh, the support of a chair. How does it support your back? The angle uh, of your computer screen, how does it affect your neck and and pain and, and so, so on. But what we'll be looking at now is, and I really think there's wonderful opportunity here is cognitive ergonomics and what's called organizational ergonomics. So it's the application basically of how the brain works in a in in a in a work setting and how can we optimize uh, how humans can think and realize um, basically the environment plays a big role that we're not taking uh, into account 
um, in how how uh, a clinician is working with the patient. And so it's basically the idea of how does how can the organization improve as a system? Uh, the Institute of Medicine, for example, mentioned that the greatest incidence of errors were due to system uh, causes, and for sure the the greatest number of factors affecting clinician burnout are system factors. So where can we overlap? How can we basically improve? So uh, human factors basically it it taps into cognitive science, medical science, organizational psychology, educational psychology, experimental psychology, um, and basically safety engineering as well. So it pulls together a lot of these different fields and takes the best of them, basically. Yeah, um, I think that's a great description. And, and I think I saw in one of your articles or presentations, you said that in most situations in healthcare, I guess the physicians and clinicians are forced to adapt to a, a system that is designed not for the humans, but for its its own purposes. And and a better way would be to, you know, design your system around uh, the humans. Is that is that? Yeah, exactly. Right. And we're and we're we're uh, you know a lot of people realizing uh, we're doing the best we can, but it's kind of like an awareness where. When we first understood that, you know, germ theory came out and there are actually germs that cause disease, uh, to realize that there's limitations in in human thinking that's affected. Uh, it's, so it's it's a framework shift. It's to understand the human limitation and how to uh, prevent that from getting into error by the way we work our systems, how we communicate, how we can work at look at workload and and realize that at the top, senior leadership, having some understanding of this can do an enormous uh, enormous improvement by just understanding some of these and, and working as a system to improve uh, what the work environment is like. So it may be helpful to give some examples. So can you give an example, I guess, where um, that you've seen, I guess, where the system is, is not designed correctly for the the physician or, or the the human yeah well good example like again we're all trying to do the best we can but uh for many mandatory education uh that we have come from various sources it might come from a state office of of, of health it might come from the cms it might be the joint commission etc so all these different sources well-meaning are coming from various sources it comes to the Quality and Safety Office, which is then dispensed in, in, into trying to get education for, for those purposes. And then it might come in from another way for educational, for um, diversity education, uh, uh, DEI kinds of issues, um, new laws that come out. Uh, and then, so all these different offices are involved. There isn't a coordination and realizing that we, hey, we really need to take this on as a system. You can't try to find pieces of time to do this, and we need a standard way we approach this. So it, it's all well-meaning, but when it comes together, it's it's wearing people out unnecessarily. Yeah, um, you, you you mentioned the proliferation of some quality metrics. We talked a lot about that uh, with some others um, uh, on the program before, um, right. as well as you know the. Um, 
you know, meaningful use program that introduced really, you know, the, the EHRs and how that has just over time, each additional program, each individual uh, mandatory requirement that gets that gets put down. And, and most of that, the work ends up having to be done by the physician or the clinician at the bedside, as opposed to uh, being able to be done in the back office stack. So you just incrementally keep adding one thing after another over the years and each one thing is well-meaning but when they they accumulate over time which drives the stress and burnout can you can you comment on that cycle a little bit more and and how how human factors or or lack of human factors engineering plays into it yeah exactly Uh, it's recognizing the danger that's involved by dispersing and 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 having the, uh, the physician try to find time and and breaking up their thinking process, which should be preserved as much as possible for the patient, as opposed. So if we look at human factors, thinking from cognitive ergonomics, we have um, three di- basic divisions: the intrinsic load, which is the basic uh, uh, brain power that's needed, for example, to diagnose. Uh, congestive heart failure, for example. Germane load is is picking up on on the pattern so that you can go into your long-term memory and say, hey, this matches congestive heart failure. Or it's if you're learning new information, it's putting it into the long-term memory. That's germane load. And then there's extraneous cognitive load. Extraneous cognitive load is a load that can be reduced uh, by better design. So what do we mean by better design would be to realize, for example, if we move all that responsibility more towards an administrative um, purpose to organize, for example, uh, the mandatories, we've taken that extraneous cognitive load off the physician and they have more of their brain power left to do what it was trained to do, which is to take care of patients and not be distracted or thrown off or used up. And to realize that cognitive, um, our, our ability for controlled thought, thought, which is what is those divides up and use those different loads, is a limited resource. Yeah, That's new thinking in human factors terms. Uh, it's a limited resource. We don't think of it that way. I think it's like we have as much brain power as we need, which is not true. Once we start, using it up, we start making mistakes. Yeah, no, I, I think we can talk about this a good bit. Um, you know, I'm, as the CMIO, I get asked frequently to add additional alerts to the computer yeah. uh, system, uh, the EHR for the physicians um, to satisfy various quality metrics. Um, and, and literally I get a new request every week. Um, and each individual one is, is um, you know, well-intentioned. Uh, to right. try to get the the provider physician to do something that is, um, you know, maybe a, a best practice, um, but you just keep interrupting that physician um, and you know that really that that cognitive uh, brain power is is what you know is their expertise is what is needed for patient care and and every time we interrupt them, um, it throws that off and and exactly. I think you mentioned as well that that rest is very important as well for uh, physician co- brain power, having breaks between, um, yep. you know, certain things. Um, comment on on the need, comment on that phenomenon, you know, the EHR alerts, which I've, I've done a 
I've worked really hard to try to reduce those as much as possible, but they keep proliferating. Um, yeah. And then also just the need for rest for the physicians. Yeah, I think I think understanding the again the intention is there for is it a patient safety issue, but realize you can optimize that by instead of interrupting, which is guaranteed to derail thought. When you interrupt, uh, it demands attention, as opposed to calling attention to something. Calling attention would be by uh, font size, for example, or color, or uh, other me mechanisms that it calls your attention to it, but it doesn't immediately interrupt. Because interrupt, this is uh, what I would bring up at our at our IT meetings uh, frequently, that a BPA, best practice alert, is guaranteed to derail thought. Now, do you want that to occur when a patient, when a doctor's thinking about differential diagnosis? Do you want that to occur when they're coming up with the best treatment plan? No, you don't. So is there another way, a safer way, a best use of uh, human limitations, realizing that you will unintentionally derail that thought? Maybe yeah. it's better to do it after they're done with the patients, you know, if there's something to come back later, or is it something you could do back ends, back office, to correct things, minimize interruptions. And every time, if you have one interruption versus two versus three versus four interruptions, each time uh, that brain power is used, it takes an enormous brain power to get back on track. Yeah. So actually, the amount of time to finish a task if you've had three interruptions is extremely long. And that happens a lot with what we've, what the computers introduced. Yeah, it, it certainly happens with, with the alerts and the EHR, but it also happens with, um, you know, with me more on the administrative side, you know, the multiple meetings in a row, but without right. a break in between, unable to stop and, and really have that decompression that's needed in order to, to perform at your, your highest level. Plus you have the phone, plus you have the emails that come in and now you got, right. you got, you got the Teams chat messages that come in. It's um, it, you know, I, I keep seeing these studies that that show, um, I, I think it's a functional MRI of your brain uh, after two or three meetings in a row, and how you really your your ability to think just goes away. Absolutely, and that's that's that limited resource. Um, that if we can think about that in a hospital system, that it's a limited resource. It needs budgeting just like we budget other things. And the cost effectiveness of that highly trained person is diminished. They're not they're not sleeping. They're having to write notes into the evening for work outside of work. Mm -hmm. um, what is the emotional cost of that on a relationship? We know that uh, it could affect uh, relationships, a risk for uh, separation and divorce. Now, what's that going to do if you're preoccupied and you're trying to pull back and get your relationship back together, and then the hospital is not realizing that by not fixing the work outside of work, now you may need to leave the hospital. You can't, uh, you know, your your spouse is not happy, significant other isn't happy. All those things that are not put into effect by the, the fact that we're humans doing the work, and how important, for example, in scaling this back, that work needs to be done and contained uh, as much as possible. So interruptions will extend how that works. Uh, it burns through your um, controlled thought. You have less available. You're more likely to make a mistake. You might be more irritable how you come across with a patient. Therefore, your increased for mal risk for malpractice goes up. 
uh, you're not as nice. Uh, you're trying to survive. Um, so it's kind of like, how do we incorporate this kind of thinking into a system that has not taken this into account? Yeah. So, so talk to us about that. What are what is your group doing? What are others doing to to do that, to take these into account and really design it for the human? Yeah, I think I, I wanted to make mention of a, a recent um, article that came out in American Hospital Association uh, today, AHA today, I think it was May 24. Um, I've gotten to know Elisa Eros Pakuchaga, who's uh, she's got she's a um, one of the vice presidents of AHA and um, in particular for clinical and workforce sustainability is her area. And I've gotten to know her over time. She's very interested in work, um, human factors. And she took uh, one of the papers I wrote, she read it a couple times, then she and her staff put together an infographic to make uh, it simpler for a layperson to understand the key concepts that are involved in um, human factors application, in particular science-based strategies to promote clinician well-being and patient safety. Um, basically, some things like uh, if if lay leaders knew some of this information, they could do marvelous things. And so it's really a leadership advantage. And my hope is that someday this will be put into MBA schools and MHA schools as part of the standard uh, education because here we are given people to lead and uh, they don't come with instructions, but this is the best thing we can do to understand the human limitations of the people we lead and therefore maximize our outputs because we know what the limitations are. We can avoid problems. The, so to close on the AHA article, basically humans have a biological response to burnout and that it can impact decision-making and safety and that workload is cognitive, emotional, and physical, and to assign and support resources accordingly. And then to bring up the concept of what we call shadow work, it's- Yeah, it's, talk about it's, shadow work, That's it's intriguing. Uh, yeah. I, you know, I was looking at that infographic and I was like, yes, we do this all the time, because you mentioned it in, in healthcare, but then you also mentioned it in our everyday lives where you're scanning your own groceries or you're going to the airport and you're putting your own tag on your bags now. Right. Um, I thought that's a very interesting phenomenon. Yeah, a, a, a Harvard uh, sociologist named Craig Lambert uh, wrote a book called uh, um, Shadow Work. It's, a, it's an incredible read because he actually gets into what society is doing. It's basically corporations have offloaded overhead onto the consumer. Medicine is doing that day in and day out now. You know, you're training people to do IVs at home. Um, it's, it's kind of offloading things that used to be done in a hospital setting or by, by trained staff to patients. Um, all this um, increasing, and it's, it's a continuing process. So it continues to increase. So, but the idea is shadow work, it's in the shadows and it's not seen by, by senior leadership. So how to bring that out of the shadows uh, is, is one of the tasks um, to be yeah. aware of it. You know, so, you know, one thing that we've done over the last year is introduce uh, virtual scribes for some of our positions um, to take away some of that note writing that is done at, at after hours, that pajama time, et cetera. And that's been very successful for the ones that have wanted to participate. Um, you know, the downside is it carries a, a very high cost. 
Uh, and so not every group is willing to fund it. Um, but there are things that are coming you know, in the near term, such as you know, Epic and others and Microsoft offering you know, some of these uh, chat GPT type mm -hmm. uh, concepts to help automate some of those processes that may drive down some of the costs. What are your, um, are you optimistic that um, some of those new developments are gonna help with this shadow work, these these other tasks, the administrative burden that has been placed on physicians and back, back office staff? Yeah, I, I'm, I'm, I'm hopeful. I, I'm definitely hopeful. And, uh, but the idea is, uh, too, is how to, how to bring that shadow work into the, into visibility yeah. too. Uh, my hope is that actually I've been talking about this more with our we have a collaborative for human factors, cognitive load and well-being in healthcare. That's it's a, it's a national it's actually an international group now of many people that are in that space of human factor application. Um, but one of the things we talked about is can we get tech companies to uh, to follow leaders of burnout so that they can help devise dashboards for leaders that look at the relevant issues, for example, not only in a clinic setting, how many patients per scene, when are they scheduled, but also to be able to track, how long did that take to write your notes? Uh, how long into the evening? So you have uh, the work done that's associated with the number of patients, because this has to be contained, basically. Um, if leaders start seeing the impact of a decision by the work that's never recorded that an executive never sees, yeah. then how can they do anything about it? So how do you get the information so an executive can see it into a dashboard? That's my hope is where uh, tech can really help us. Yeah, no, I've heard of a few organizations, not many, that do have those, you know, provider efficiency scores or burnout scores on their, you know, quality metrics that they look at and, and are incentivized by, um, but that would be a great way to, to show that or bring that shadow work uh, right. into the forefront because the data is there, but um, right, very you know, only a few of us look at it uh, frequently. Right, and so to bring that together, because it's actually one of the uh, strategies is consolidation of, of, of putting the things together that are related because you, you have a working memory that can only take care of a few things. You have about 30 seconds of thought time. Mm -hmm. And so, you, so the more you pair the relevant issues together within that 30 seconds, th then you make your decisions upon that. So that's how tech can help us by dashboard kinds of things, by pulling the relevant features together. And to work, I think, really working with burnout and patient safety folks so that an administrator can actually see what's related to their decision making yeah. uh, in real time. That's, that's what I think our, our good future is. What about is there anything else happening at the national level um, or is all of this human factors work done at the local level? Well, I think uh, coming out with this, for example, the infographic to me, what was was helping about that is, you know, we do lean measures. Or we do lean interventions to try to make work processes better. Uh, if an administrator knows something about human factors, they can actually prevent it before it actually occurs compared to lean, which is usually after the fact. We notice mm -hmm. there's a problem. Wouldn't it be great if we can improve X, Y, Z? Well, somebody who's designing 
things, knowing something about human factors and realize where the bottlenecks are so they don't have to occur and to, to realize we need to shape it around. So in a national level, it's 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 coming out, at least I'm, I'm very glad there. There's a few places that are using this more and more. For example, Christiana Care uh, in Delaware, uh, Dr. Heather Farley is, um, is operationalized cognitive load by various scientific measures of measuring it and see if there's ways for the clinician she can reduce it. Um, in the VA system, I know uh, VA system in Missouri, they're implementing it into leadership training. Uh, the uh, Veterans Administration Quality Fellowship in uh, Texas is, in, is incorporating this into their uh, quality and safety education of their fellows now. So it's, it's getting out there. It's it, but it's a slow process, um, but it's it and it's been against, you know, we've had a, a when you think about uh, the aha moments that come from when you think about it. Yeah, of course, doesn't this make sense? But we're it's against the schema of how we get paid. It isn't mm -hmm. incorporated in usually our metrics are AAA metrics. This is really about the fourth aim, the experience of providing care. If you define that as human factors in the in the experience of providing care, then that's really uh, by pulling the fourth aim in um, and defining it as these kinds of ways, I think we can make a lot of progress. But our payment system is still triple A metrics based. Um, so yeah, I, I think you talked about that, you know, where most of us are still paid on a productivity uh, basis yeah. where you have to do more in order to, uh, you know, to maintain your same level. You know, talk about how I guess that dynamic plays into um, the increased cognitive load and, and demand. Yeah, yeah, exactly. A lot of our our pressures are are quarter based as opposed to longer term strategies. How are we doing this quarter, the second quarter, the third quarter? Um, and we we lose track of well, how many people did we lose? How's our retention rate? Um, you know, the, the so I, I have put together some ideas about some of the reasons for the invisibility of human factors. <laughs> um, one is, I think, non-familiarity with human factors and ergonomics. Our authority effect is another. We tend to do what national, state, and industry authorities tell us to do. Financial measures frequently change, <clears throat> and this, the poor C-suite is always trying to do everything they can to keep on top of the next change. What What is um, CMS come out with, pay for performance, qual what's new quality value? Um, safety measures, it just consumes leadership attention. But um, the cost silos, they're not making the connections about other costs. That's where tech can help us again, uh, pulling in the longer term cost from something that happened acutely. And then I, what I call halo bias. Um, halo bias is assigning the term quality or safety to a process that people don't question enough just because we called it patient safety. Maybe yeah. it's not. Maybe it's not patient safety. Maybe actually it's making things worse. If one times doing something is safe, maybe a thousand times doing it is safe. Well, it's not. It's actually there's a tipping point, right, where it's it's overdone and it's actually backfiring. So that's halo bias gets us into trouble because we don't question enough. Is it really good patient safety? What we're what we're calling patient safety. So there's assumption made uh, and the logic becomes circular. So my advice is the question, is it really patient safety? Has anybody really thought about 
the fact that all these different authorities are telling us these are quality things. How about in total? In total, is this patient safety or is it making it worse? So it really challenge that thinking. Yeah. Uh, but it's hard. There's, yeah. It's I mean, there's hard. been a lot of in, uh, interesting discussion about uh, the proliferation of quality metrics. Uh, you know, there's a recent one out of Johns Hopkins is just about how much they spend each year on quality measures. And it is, and it's, you know, in the, in the, I, I forgot the number, but it's uh, millions of dollars um, to, to satisfy those quality measures every year. Um, and they keep proliferating. And there is some talk, I guess, about consolidating the quality measures, but I, um, it hasn't quite happened yet, and they still keep coming. <laughs> I had recent uh, contact recently with N NCQA, National Committee for Quality uh, Assurance, and uh, basically about the certification process, can we really look at these measures, the HEDIS measures? Uh, are, are, are N metrics really capturing quality? We have nothing that looks at, well, what decisions were made upstream that led to this result? Mm -hmm. And yet IOM in 1999 said the biggest number of errors are systemic based, but we keep ignoring systems. Um, so I had written to them recently because we did some uh, a survey locally that showed some of the interactions with like a, a payer health, uh, all the things that are wearing us down at the payer level. And that actually we had picked up on deaths that occur as a result of, for example, prior authorization, three mm -hmm. deaths out of 95 uh, practices. We found three deaths, four is issues of disability, 21 patients got experienced uh, with near disability from it, and then 32 hospitalizations occurred due to uh, prior authorization. So we need to think about if that insurance company is NCQA certified for quality, how is that quality? We got to rethink what we're talking about, these metrics that are used for, for a quality type of certification and accreditation. You got to call them out. They're not yeah. doing it, and and just bring these up at, at national levels. Well, Dr. Vitera, thank you so much, and this has been uh, fantastic. It reminds me of the famous quote from Dr. W. Edwards Deming that a good person will be destroyed by a bad system every day, and uh, and I think we're seeing that. Well, thank you so much for coming on. Thank you for bringing up this very important work. And if people want to learn more about you and your work, is there a place they can go to? I think uh, just my website has a lot of the information. It's www.michaelrprivateramd.com. Well, fantastic. Thank you so much on behalf of Baptist Memorial Healthcare. Just thank you so much for spending time with us today. Absolutely. Pleasure. Thank you, Mike.